Get off my lawn. And by lawn, I mean 100 feet above it. Mark McKinnon from Fox Rothschild stops by to tell us how flying drones got in trouble again. I'm Lawrence Colletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Hope you're having a great day out there, wherever you might be. Before we jump into our show, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Let's say hello to our guest. He's a partner at the law firm of Fox Rothschild. Welcome to the show. Mark McKinnon. Hi, how you doing? Doing great. Well, today we're, uh, Mark, we're talking obviously about the Long Lake Township versus Maxson, and that's a Michigan case out there. And uh, you wrote about this case in an article called Drone Operators Beware, Michigan Appellate Court Opines on Privacy. So basically the drones have done it again. So Mark, why don't we start with the facts of the case? How do we go from junk cars to a decision about flying drones? Yeah, so this dispute actually is a long-standing dispute. It actually goes back to 2008. And uh, Long Lake Township and the defendant at that time litigated a zoning dispute over a lot of junk cars and other junk materials that he had stored on his property. And they reached an agreement of that, which basically said he didn't have to remove what was there, but he was not allowed to add to what was on the property. And the township suspected for a number of years that he was violating the settlement agreement, and ultimately they wound up taking him back to court. And as part of that, they hired a certificated drone aerial photographer to take pictures of his property over an extended period of time. I think it was three or four times over more than a year. And the pictures, in fact, showed that the amount of the junk piles were growing. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. And so let's do this really quick. Let's talk about the procedural history of the case, where it finally ended up. And then if you could just briefly tell us about how the court decided, that'd be great. Then we'll get into some of the history of how and why we have rights to the airspace above our homes. Okay. So the way it worked out is none of the defendant's property was visible from the ground. And as a result, he decided he would defend himself from this new action by moving to suppress all of the aerial photographs on the grounds that that constituted an illegal search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Um, and he argued that the aircraft was operated in violation of the FAA rules, although actually, I think subsequently, the testimony at the hearing before the trial court indicates it probably was flown legally. But then the court did also rule on the Fourth Amendment grounds and denied the motion to suppress saying that the plaintiff did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in any of the parts of his property that were visible from the air, regardless of whether they were visible from the street. And then he appealed that ruling from the suppression hearing to the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals, in a two-to-one decision, reversed and found that, in fact, the evidence needed to be suppressed and that it was actually a search in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Now, this is pretty interesting because this builds upon a pretty classic set of cases that established that airspace rights over homes. And if you've been to law school pseudo recently, you'll uh, remember a 1986 case and a 1989 case that basically called out exactly how low any governing authority can go when they're spying on your home. And so I think they came up with if you're below a thousand feet, you got to get a warrant if you're in an aircraft, fixed wing aircraft. And then if it's 400 feet and below and you're in a helicopter, you got to get a warrant there too. And then, Mark, there's some aspect of that that's, uh, you know, from a a vantage point that's uh, publicly accessible and special equipment. So can you walk us through how those two cases sort of work together? Yeah, these cases actually build on some decisions from the 40s, because under the ye old English law that our ancestors were familiar with, when you owned the land, you owned 
to land all the way up to the reaches of the sky, the ultimate limit of, of the atmosphere. Um, in the 40s, the Supreme Court in a series of decisions said, no, we can't have that anymore. The creation of the airplane means that all of the airspace is actually like a common property that people have a right to transit and that everybody has a right to use and that generally the federal government is going to be in charge of regulating. it. So they kind of, we start from that premise that, you know, back in the 40s, they abandoned the idea that you own the airspace over your house all the way up as high as it'll go. In 1986, there was a guy who was growing marijuana in his yard and police out in California, they, uh, they got an airplane and they flew it a thousand feet over his property to f- observe it with their eyes. And from that altitude, they could see that he had a fairly large marijuana crop growing. And then the officer took pictures using a camera and then they used those pictures and his testimony to then get a search warrant to go in onto his property. And at the time, the property owner argued that the photographs constituted an illegal search and therefore the warrant was invalid. And the Supreme Court, you know, kind of in that landmark decision ruled that it's not an illegal search because you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your land from observation from the air. One of the things they said is that any member of the public in the airspace who happened to glance down could have seen anything that the officers observed. So there wasn't anything special. The officers weren't doing anything that basically anybody could see. And they was more analogous at that point to those cases that says that, you know, if there's an officer on the street and he doesn't enter your property, but he can see things on your property, that that doesn't constitute an illegal search. So they basically said a police officer in an airplane who's in the same place that any member of the public could be, he is basically in that same position and it's not a search. And one of the things they said is that in, in an age where private and commercial flight in the public airways is routine, It's unreasonable for the respondent to expect that his marijuana plants were constitutionally protected from being observed with the naked eye from altitude at a thousand feet. And so that's where they came out on that case. And then a couple of years later, there was a chance to look at it again, because rather than an airplane, the police in that case used a helicopter. So police had a helicopter and they flew over this guy's property at 400 feet. And the court in Riley also said under those circumstances, even though the helicopter is at 400 feet instead of 1,000 feet, that the person could not reasonably have expected that his greenhouse was protected from public or official observation from a helicopter had it been flying within the navigable airspace for fixed-wing aircraft. So they started with that, saying that just because it's a helicopter didn't change anything. Now, what about the lower altitude? Right, right. They said the lower altitude didn't matter. They said we would have a different case if flying that altitude, 400 feet, had been illegal. But helicopters don't have the same rules that apply to them in the navigable airspace as manned aircraft. So as a result, since any member of the public could legally have been flying over his property in a helicopter at 400 feet and observed the greenhouse, the same rule was going to apply to the police, and you didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, if that reasoning had translated towards this drone case that we're talking about, you've got smaller aircraft, unmanned, of course, that don't fly as high. They don't uh, they don't fly at 400 feet readily uh, so much that I'm aware of, like helicopters, and they certainly don't go to 1,000 feet that I'm aware of, like an airplane. So they fly in this lower space, and there's movement moves right now to try to turn some of those spaces about people's homes into more of a um, navigable way, you know, for uh, drone deliveries. And so had the court extended that logic, it's possible that we could have a new standard for another altitude test for unmanned craft. But the court didn't go that way. Why was that? As you mentioned in the helicopter case, that case turned on whether or not the flight was legal or illegal. And for drones, the way that the current federal aviation regulations are, you can't fly a drone 
over 400 feet, that that space between 400 feet in the ground, assuming you have your part 107 license or you're properly operating as a hobbyist under the regulations, you have to stay between 400 feet in the ground. So that window of airspace is actually all navigable for unmanned aircraft right off the bat. So, you know, as again, assuming the person is licensed, you know, they have their pilot's license, Anytime the drone is between 400 feet and zero feet under Florida versus Riley, it should be something that would be permissible because the flight is legal under those circumstances. Now, the way the court decided to look at it differently for a number of different reasons. One was that the court was concerned over the stealthy aspects of unmanned aircraft. That, you know, if a helicopter flies at 400 feet over your property, you're going to know it. You know, it's really noisy. You'll see it. The person is on some kind of notice. And the court is noticing that with drones, you know, particularly, you know, I don't know if you've seen some of these toys out there. There are, there are ones that are, you know, essentially toys that are very quiet and actually have pretty good cameras in them. And so with that kind of an aircraft, you know, you could be flying around someone's property and there would really be no way the person, unless they happen to be outside and we're in a position to hear it, they wouldn't even know that you were conducting that search. So that's one of the reasons they looked at it. And the second one is that, both the helicopter case and the aircraft case started from the proposition that it was an officer seeing the property with his own eye. So he's very much like the guy who's standing on the street looking into your property. And with unmanned aircraft, particularly the larger ones, you know, more capable ones, like the ones between, you know, two and 20 pounds, they have very sophisticated cameras on them, capable of very high resolution pictures. So when you have the very low altitude that they can fly at, the kind of stealthy way they can move around, and the very high resolution of the cameras, the court said that the situation was no longer analogous to somebody, you know, taking a picture or observing from 400 feet with their own eyes. Yeah, and that doesn't really seem very sportsman-like. Yeah. So, well, listen, Mark, got a couple of minutes here, but I definitely want to get to a few more questions. And so I want to get back to uh, your piece just a little bit that you wrote. And, and you talked about this notion that was considered in the case. Um, a citizen's Fourth Amendment protection should not be at the mercy of advancing technology. So how did that get applied to this case? Yeah, and, and I think that was one of those you know, things where they analogize it. There's a, there's a series of cases involving, you know, again, a police officer who's on the street, but they're using technology to enhance their perceptions. And I believe the one case involved using infrared cameras or infrared detectors that essentially allowed the police, even though they were standing in a public place, to see inside the house. And the Supreme Court basically did the groundwork in those decisions by saying, you know, we're not going to just say every time technology allows us to intrude into a place where we couldn't do it before, that that all automatically becomes a reasonable intrusion. And again, that, that kind of you know, feeds into the way the drone technology is, where it's, you're talking about a very low cost to buy these things, very little FAA regulation when it compared to manned aircraft or helicopters, you know, very sophisticated and increasingly sophisticated cameras. You know, you have, you have state privacy laws in several places, which make it illegal actually to use infrared cameras and things like that to spy on someone in their dwelling. So there are already state statutes out there that deal with that part of the technology. So I think all of those combined are where they said, look, we're going to draw the line here that just because it's easy to do and anybody can do it doesn't mean it's reasonable for people to do it. Now, there's Michigan's got a privacy statute that uh, played a role here. Now, how much weight was given to that, I guess, in addition to the Fourth Amendment protections? The court gave it pretty good weight, I think, because you know part of the, the test for Fourth Amendment search, again, is whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy where you are and then the activities that you're doing. So if you have a state statute 
that says that people on their own property, you know, that they should be, um, you know, immune from people using drones to peep on them or to surveil them, that that's a good source of, you know, a good objective source of what a reasonable person in Michigan could expect, you know, both from a police from use of a drone and from commercial use of drones. All right. My last question for you, this one's for the uh, drone pilots out there. And so it seems like this case expanded some civil claims that could potentially go against a drone pilot. So, you know, if a drone pilot's out there flying over his neighbor's house, trying to figure out if the grass is truly greener on the other side, you know, they could potentially be involved in some uh, civil cases more readily. So kind of explain how the civil claims grew because of this case. Yeah, and I think that's that really is true here, because even apart from the Michigan privacy statute, and again, a lot of states actually have specific drone privacy statutes, which actually do make you know you liable under civil law for using drones to spy on someone. All of those, just like the normal tort, every state's got a tort of invasion of privacy. If you if you go into someone's you know, a place where they reasonably have an expectation of privacy and you publish things that they have that expectation of privacy, you're liable for the common law tort of invasion of privacy. And all of those things turn on whether or not you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So by the court here, even though it was in the Fourth Amendment context, saying that, you know, a drone flying at 100 or 200 feet violates your reasonable expectation of privacy, that translates directly into claims, civil claims, that somebody would make either under a statute or under the common law tort of invasion of privacy. Well, Mark, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being here. Great. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please leave us a good rating in your favorite podcasting app. And one more time, thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnota.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN audio crew for all of their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Clitty. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.